0: Welcome to today's community cast. My name is Matt Morgan. I'm the pastor at Community Brookside, a new church plant in Tulsa, Oklahoma. We are so blessed by your presence, and we hope that today's content will bring you joy. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Lame, good morning, everyone. Alright, so listen, when we come into this place, we should be a little more excited than we have been, so I encourage you guys to laugh this morning, to be involved in worship this morning. If I tell a story that you like, please just shout amen from the top of your lungs because thank you. I want this to be a church that is excited about what we do. So this morning, I'm going to tell you a story that you've probably heard before. If you haven't, It's a great story, and oftentimes when we talk about Scripture, one of the things we've been talking about over the last few weeks is how sometimes we pull Scripture out of context and apply it to something else that is totally irrelevant, and sometimes we forget that there's a huge overarching story that God tells through the Gospels of Jesus, and this morning we're going to hear just a snippet of it, and then we're going to hear the story in the full context. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn, if you have a Bible, to John chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. It will be up here as well. So this is the end of John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 23, and we're going to go on through 317. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Of course, we're talking about Jesus here. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Well, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not come, sorry, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. We've all heard John 3.16, right? And I think many of us have probably heard the story of Nicodemus. I don't want to tell you a little, little fun story. Now, there's a story of two... Preachers who were standing on the roadside with a sign that read, The end is near. Turn around now before it's too late. A passing driver yelled, Leave us alone, you religious nuts. Then the preachers heard a loud splash. One preacher said to the other, Do you think we should have just made the sign that said Bridge Out? (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll let that sink in. and Okay, all right. Sometimes the truth can be right in front of us and we don't read it. Sometimes the, the truth can be told to us and maybe we don't hear it the way it's meant to be expressed. It looks to me like if we read the story of Nicodemus, that he doesn't really understand what Jesus is talking about. So, I think we have 2,000 years of theology that we as Christians get to reflect upon when we hear that Jesus is talking about, you must be born again, right? Like... Born, being born again is like this move that happened in the late 40s and early 50s. Being born again is this understanding of like you cannot really call yourself a Christian unless you've had this religious experience and you've given your life over to Jesus and you've had this new creation put inside of you. Uh, we, we know that language. Born again is something I think many of us are familiar with. But we have to remember in the first century, Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was saying. What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? I'm an older man. There's no way I could be born again. That just doesn't even make sense. Jesus then has to tell him, you have to be born of both water, of humanity, and of spirit, of God. You have to be a, a man of two persons. You have to be a man of humanity and a man who seeks out God. Our scripture looks at Zac- sorry, not of Nicodemus and he goes to Jesus when? At night, right? What do you think that means or represents? He didn't want people to see him. Why did he not want people to see him go to Jesus at night? He had a reputation? So here's what's cool. So as I'm digging into this, trying to research for this this week's sermon, um, I kind of got to understand what it really meant to be a part of the Jewish ruling council, right? So we've all heard of the word Sanhedrin. Some of us have heard that. So Sanhedrin, actually, it's really cool. Sanhedrin is actually two different groups. And the Sanhedrin, which is called the the Great Sanhedrin, is uh, based in Jerusalem. And it's made up of 71 Jewish leaders, right? These are people who know the law. They know the rules. And these are the people who are basically like the Supreme Court of uh, the, the Jewish people. And so they met in Jerusalem. Now, in almost every single town throughout Judea and anywhere there was a Jewish temple, there also would have been uh, a smaller group of Sanhedrin that was made up of 32 people, I believe. 32, 71, 32 for the small and 71 for the big one. But Uh, sorry, 23, 23. Got it. Reverse dyslexic. So the Sanhedrin was this group of folks that were set apart in every village and every place to be a judge of the people. And, and we see Jesus getting, uh, getting this weird visit in the middle of the night from somebody who would have been easily recognized, right? Because we all, I know all of us fawn over our Supreme Court justices, right? Like we know them all, all their names. That, yeah. Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, So it's a little bit different now because they are so far removed. We're a giant country and they are so far removed from us in our daily lives. We don't think much about the importance of the Supreme Court. But back in this time, the people would have known every religious leader who were a part of the Jewish ruling council in the Sanhedrin. So part of it is, yeah, he didn't want to be recognized. But also what happens at night? Uh, well, there's a lot of things that could happen. That, very open-ended question there. I realize that. Um, but when we do something in the cover of darkness, clearly there's there's a, an ulterior motive a lot of times, right? So when we see the story, we, we hear this moment where, where Jesus begins to teach Nicodemus and he tells him something that Nicodemus wasn't ready to hear. And he tells him, in this very interesting way, and he tells him in the cover of darkness, and it's kind of in secret. When when Nicodemus shows up at Jesus' place, we don't get to know what Nicodemus' motive is. It's kind of an assumption that we make as believers that Nicodemus was trying to hide himself because maybe he was embarrassed about his conversation with Jesus. Maybe he was ashamed. Maybe he just didn't want to be kicked out of his ruling council. Maybe he had some power. And if people saw him going to this false prophet, Jesus, that they would kick him out of the Jewish ruling temple or Jewish ruling council, right? There's, there's a lot of assumptions that we can make, or we can make the assumption that Nicodemus just really wanted to know who Jesus was. And based on the way we read that scripture, it changes everything about the meaning of that scripture, right? So we know there would have been pressure put on Nicodemus. Now, you're, you're one of us, right? Like, you are one of the Jewish ruling council. You are uh, well-educated. You are smart. You are trained in all things Torah. You know the law backwards and forwards. You don't want to associate with that Galilean, with that, that minor prophet, that rabble-rouser so the only way he could have found out who Jesus was, was by sneaking to him in the middle of the night. How many of you grew up going to Sunday school when you were younger? I did every week, right? A lot of us every week. How many of you have heard this story before? Lots of us. How many of you were told, like, don't be like Nicodemus? We need to be a, we're not afraid or not ashamed to share our faith, right? We don't need to show up in the middle of the night to sneak and kind of hide behind uh, closed doors the, uh, to find Jesus. We need to share the, the gospel of Jesus with everybody. Like, that's how I was taught that story. I was taught to be kind of ashamed of Nicodemus and not to be like him. He was the perfect bad example. And the crazy thing is, the only book in the Bible that talks about Nicodemus is John. And he doesn't just show up here. He shows up two other times. And so today I want us to look at the, the true story, the fuller story of who Nicodemus is. This is only the first time we meet Nicodemus and we have this weird sense of him, right? Like we don't really know how this story ends because that it's that abrupt. Jesus says, hey, Uh, I've come to change the whole world. I'm not come to condemn it, but I've come to save it. And that's the end of the story. It's the end. We don't see Nicodemus again until John chapter seven. So if you have your Bibles with you, switch over to John chapter seven. And this is going to happen in verse 37 through 52. So to preface this next story, Jesus is in Jerusalem again. And this time he's at the feast of tabernacles and he begins to teach in the temple so everybody can see him. And while he's there, he says some things that make people mad, as Jesus often did. And the great Sanhedrin, the group of seventy-two people, they they ask the temple guards to go and arrest him and bring him to them so they can judge him. Because Jesus is causing a ruckus during the festival. And so and here's where the story picks up in verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow up from them. Now we see this, this idea of spirit. One must be born of water and the spirit, right? Same kind of situation here. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Still others asked, How can this Messiah come from Galilee? Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, Why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come from Galilee. In the first story of Nicodemus, we see a man who has seeds planted in his life, right? We see the story of a man who comes and finds Jesus at night. And the next time Nicodemus shows up, he's standing up for who Jesus is, right? Our own law doesn't require that we condemn somebody until we hear from them. What are you trying to do? And then their retort is pretty funny. What do they say? What are you from Galilee too? And I don't think we get the insult that that is. I I don't even know what the equivalent would be. Like, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings by calling out like a specific part of town or a neighborhood. What are you from Maple Ridge too? But clearly they thought that something was wrong. What are, you, what are you, a Galilean also? Why are you sticking up for this guy? This guy is, he's, he's fighting against all the things that we're teaching. He's trying to steal power from us. What are you doing? We've got to take him to prison. We've got to put him in chains. Nicodemus in that moment is the only one who speaks up for Jesus. So we see a man who goes from hiding about who Jesus is, hiding to go and hear from him, someone who is afraid to go see him in the middle of the day to somebody who's now finally got a little bit of a backbone. How many of us have done that? How many of us have grown in our faith, have gone from this moment where, you know, I'll go to church once, I'll try it out, I'll see how it goes, to then saying, hey, now there might be something valid to this whole Jesus thing, right? We can see growth in the life of Nicodemus and we need to have that same kind of growth in our lives too. By the end of Nicodemus' story, we see this beautiful character arc, The funny thing is, they say, has any one of us, the, the Pharisees, has, has, have you seen any of us believe in this Jesus guy? And I imagine Nicodemus is like... Because <laughs> clearly you can't pronounce that in this council. In just four chapters, chapters and two encounters, we see that Nicodemus goes from hiding his feelings about Jesus to sneakily going to him at night to now questioning the authority of the religious leaders because he knew there was something special about the man that he had visited. The next time we see Nicodemus, it's at the end of Jesus' life. Jesus had been through a trial, and since Nicodemus was on the religious ruling council, I'm 100% sure that Nicodemus had a a part to play in in that story. After the trial... After the high priests brought Jesus to Pilate, Jesus was condemned to death because that's what the Jewish ruling council wanted. They wanted him to die. Pilate tried 3 different times to tell them, "Listen, there I can't find any guilt in this man. There's nothing that he has done that deserves death." And the Pharisees and the religious ruling council kept saying, "Crucify him. We don't want this guy alive. He's a threat." To our power. He's a threat to what we know. He's a threat to the way of life that we've been trained up to believe. And finally, Jesus was crucified. After Jesus dies on the cross, we get to see Nicodemus again. You can switch over to John chapter 19, verses 38 through 42, if you want to follow along. And if not, it's still on the screen. And here's what it says. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. At the end of the story of Nicodemus, we see that he's one of the men who helps take Jesus' body off the cross and anoint him. It says he brings 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. What did Jesus get when he was born? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 75 pounds, that's not light, right? I have two kids. I have Levi, who's very proud that he's 44.4 pounds. And then I have Alyssa, who's solidly like 75 pounds. I could not imagine carrying that little child, who's not that little anymore, to go anoint a body, right? So this is a man who's clearly not afraid to be seen anymore because I'm sure he's dragging this large pot of aloe and myrrh to go take down the body of Jesus and anoint him. We see this beautiful shift from a man who could not be seen supporting Jesus, could not be seen to to enter the same place as Jesus, And then he sticks up for Jesus when they try to take him away. And now at the death of Jesus, he's one of the men who lays Jesus' body in the tomb. If we don't get to read the full context of who Nicodemus is, we just see him, this coward, who comes to Jesus at night. I'm afraid, Jesus. Who are you really? Tell me a story about you. But don't let anybody see me, right? If that's the only thing we get, we get to see Nicodemus in a very different light than we do if we see him at the end of the story who's a man who now takes Jesus off the cross and I absolutely believe that he fully believes that Jesus is who he says he is. And the thing is, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes was not easy to come by. So we see that now... Nicodemus is making a sacrifice for Jesus because he believes that Jesus made a sacrifice for him. I don't know if you're following along with me when I'm telling this story, but I want you to hear it. This story, friends, is our story. This is a story about us who some of us came to our faith in fear initially. Some of us came to faith not really believing fully, not really knowing who Jesus was, just kind of guessing, kind of roaming around in the darkness. And finally, when we see Jesus, we see the light. The seeds that were planted in Nicodemus came to full fruition at the end of Jesus' story. Sorry, not the end of Jesus' story, because we know that story goes goes on. But the last time we see Nicodemus in the scripture, he has faith in a God who gave himself up for him. The story of Nicodemus is our story because all of us are called to make that big character swing. All of us are called to grow in our faith. We're all called to give up some things. We're all called to sacrifice. We're all called to be a part of the movement of the kingdom of God here and now. The great news is that our story doesn't stop here. If you're sitting in this place today and maybe you haven't made a decision to fully give your heart and your life to Jesus, know that there's always an opportunity right here and right now. If you're sitting in this place today and you're not sure where you are in your faith, know that there's there's still hope that your story will change. There's hope that Jesus will move in you in a powerful way to show you who he is. Our salvation, our sanctification are not complete just because we show up in church on Sunday morning. And our stories won't be complete until each of us has an opportunity to come face-to-face with the self-giving, ever-loving, sacrificial love of Jesus. The story of Nicodemus is our story. So today, as you've heard this story, I hope that you can find yourself somewhere in that story and have hope. And be thankful that your story is not over. Today, I want you to hear about redemption and spiritual growth. And I want us to strive to be like Nicodemus, unafraid. Once we've had that moment of fear and once we've conquered that moment of fear, I want us to be unafraid to search out Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you so much for joining us on today's Community Cast. We hope that you were blessed by today's conversation. If you'd like to know more about Community Brookside, please feel free to visit us at our website, communitybrookside.com, or find us on your favorite social media outlet. We hope to hear from you soon. Be blessed.